Welcome back to Bookworm. Uh, Joe is still trying to figure things out. So I've got another guest here today. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Mike. Nice talking to you on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it doesn't happen every day, but every couple of weeks or so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, though. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, I love what you guys have been doing over the years, and uh, I'm pleased to be part of it for one week. Awesome. Well, you've had a bigger influence on Bookworm than you realize, I think, because uh, I shared last episode when, when Vardy was on uh, a personal story of encouragement I received from from him, which meant a lot. And uh, I remember getting emails from you uh, when I had no prior interactions with you, uh, and you were basically listening to, to Bookworm, and I was sharing the things that I was frustrated with and the struggles I was going through. And Every once in a while, I'd get an encouraging note saying, hey, buddy, you got this. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciated that. So uh, that was the the support, honestly, that I needed when I had a, a lot of other things going on. And Bookworm was the side project that who knows if it's ever going to gain any traction. You know, I I appreciate the uh, the, the kind words and the, the support over the years. So it seemed only natural to have you on at, at some point when uh, we needed to start having rotating guests. Can I just tell the folks listening that if you ever got to know Mike Schmitz personally, this guy just like drips in competence. It just like drips off of him. If you ever get to meet him, he's exactly what he sounds like on the show. I just want to give a little <laughs> behind the scenes. So, yeah, I, I think I, I think that was that faith was well placed. You you do got this, Mike. Oh, well, thank you. So, yeah, the other thing uh, that made you a logical person for for this episode i think um is that we have a mutual friend and, and mike actually brought up this this book to us individually but then also on the last episode uh, i was kind of ranting about how i really did not like zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and he said oh well you got to read this other book that that robert pierce wrote wrote uh, on quality and uh we were talking offline and you mentioned that you were not a huge fan of zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance either uh, but we figured we would give this one a shot and, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's kind of a, a an interesting, uh, interesting book. It's a, a compilation of, uh, different writings that Robert Piercig has had over the, the years, but it's really not, you know, a, a book as, uh, you would think of a, a book being put together. It's basically something that was uh, assembled by his wife after he passed away from, different letters and lectures and, and things that that he has written and it's broken into a couple different parts here which are going to hit on some themes that I know you and I have talked quite a bit about on the the focus podcast so um, I'm excited to talk about them again here in context to uh, to this book that we we both read uh, before we get into it too far I guess you know what what did you uh, think of on quality when you when you first picked it up? I was confused, honestly, because it's a, it's a difficult book to absorb. This is not your typical, you know, uh, habits for highly effective people kind of book. <laughs> you know, the uh, uh, Persig is an interesting guy. I actually went and did more research as I was reading the book to try and make more sense of it. Um, he wrote another book after Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance in 1991 called Lila. And that book is almost necessary to read this book. So I went and I haven't read the entire thing, but I've gone through big portions of it because he's making an argument here for a thing that he has dubbed the metaphysics of quality. And it's, um, 
very philosophical. You know, it's a, it's a way to perceive reality. And he's like combining all sorts of things. Like clearly he has some Eastern philosophy under his belt, but he also, you know, grew up in the, in America and he spent time in India and he spent time with native Americans. And so he's got a very like interesting take on how to perceive the world. And that's what he's arguing for throughout this series of interviews. But you know, it's a book that was put together after he passed away. He never, he never really put it together into an argument. It's more of like, when you read it, you've got to piece it together yourself, which can be fun, right? But for heavy duty metaphysics, where, you know, we're talking about a difference between duality and and what he's talking about, where you perceive where there's no difference between perception and reality. It's, Man, this one, was, it was rough, to be honest with you. <laughs> I guess that's a long way to put this. This was a rough read. Um, I'm trying to get out of it. I don't want to do the book injustice, because I think if you're interested in those questions, I think he definitely has an interesting take on it. But I also want to be clear, this is not a book you read if you want to get better at answering email. I mean, it's uh, it's yeah. something much different than that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, I did not like that book. I think it was the lowest rating I've ever given a, a bookworm book, to be honest. Um, but this one I enjoyed quite a bit more. Now, I did not actually go back and read Lila, which was the the other one that he wrote after Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance that you referenced earlier. But uh, I did get a few more puzzle pieces, I feel, on reading this one. So some of his background and his story comes through in this one in a way, maybe it was there was then in the art of motorcycle maintenance and I just kind of missed it. But um, I do remember when we read that one, finding out about the, his child, Chris, who got murdered. I mean, that's such a terrible, uh, yeah. terrible event. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with something like that? Uh, but then also I learned in this book that he actually had at some point spent some time in a, a mental hospital. I mean, he, this was a, a complex guy with some some complex things that he was was struggling with, and um, I feel like having that that broader picture of who he was uh, that helped me not dislike Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance quite as much. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And like for me, I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance young, but I was kind of on a journey and interested in Buddhism at the time, and I wanted some answers. But if you actually look into Buddhism, there's very few answers in books. The idea is actually that you find the answers on the cushion, not in a book. And But this book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, had very little to do with Zen, in my opinion. In fact, maybe it yeah. was the very first book to use in commercially <laughs> because that is a thing now, right? You know, it's like you go and you can buy Zen candles and Zen socks and Zen whatever. Uh, but the, uh, but I felt like the book, the title didn't jive with me with the content, but now understanding what he was aiming for with this whole thing on quality, that was a thing for him even back then. It does make more sense now, right? I think Lila was even more explicit, but you know, he's looking for a different metaphysics here. He's not writing about Zen or really motorcycle maintenance. Yeah, exactly. And and you knew that reading just that that first book, but I don't know. Uh, it it never really clicked for me. And, and I feel like if I had a different, if I had read this 
this first or had some additional perspective prior to reading that one, maybe it would have landed a little bit different. Although I, I still am not a huge fan of just the the style and the approach um, because it doesn't really fit the the format of the the books that we cover for Bookworm. And honestly, those are the books that I prefer to read. I know you're always trying to get me to read fiction. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance kind of read like a fiction story at times. <laughs> no, that's not the kind of fiction I want you to read. But yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't judge fiction on that book, but the, yeah, you know, the, um, I think there's really, as I, cause I read the book twice and I also read Lila or most of it. And, and I really am concerned appearing on this show and not doing this book justice. Cause the guy is trying to do something uh, and, you know, he's gone and he can't defend himself and they're just collecting his writings and putting it out. So, so there is merit to it on two levels. I think the first merit is, his whole idea of metaphysics of quality, if you want to be a philosopher and go down that rabbit hole, um, it looks like it's highly Indian influence because he spent time there. But the idea of, you know, subjective and objective being combined into one perception that you don't control is kind of the way I t- my takeaway from it. And he did the research on it. He did. He also has some science background. And like at, at one point he makes up he makes an argument in the book about you know how we measure things and i thought it was really a good one cuz in the modern day like with all of, i mean this is written well before the internet blew up but you know we do have a lot of people that are arguing about things that should be not argued about you know that look like truths and and maybe our metaphysics isn't good enough now for us to objectively look at the world as it moves so quickly. But I just I just felt like I, I could barely grab onto the tiger's tail of this big argument. But then interspersed throughout the book are little thoughts and observations that I think work no matter whether you buy into his metaphysics of quality or not. I feel like there's a lot of good wisdom in the book. Yeah, you can tell that what he is struggling with, and really it's not him because this is just pieces of things that he has written, um, but he, you can tell, uh, is a deep brother. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. Uh, he has read a lot, he has learned a lot, and I kind of empathize. Uh, I don't want to put myself at the, the same intellectual level as, as he is. I'm definitely not there. Um, but I feel like what I see in some of the writings that he has is he is trying to figure this stuff out for himself. And in doing so, he ends up going so deep that the casual reader who picks this up has trouble staying with him because he's just at a whole different place, a whole nother plane. And uh, I, I feel like he would be a really interesting person to sit down and actually talk to about this. It would, it, he was a professor and one of the the things that kind of struck me let's let's get into the first part of this book actually the the preface it's called yeah. Bob's Quest because um, this is where he talks about static quality versus dynamic quality but the the pivotal event here that got him thinking about this he shares was when he had a, a colleague at Montana State College who just made a passing comment while she was watering the plants in between uh, one of his lecture sessions saying I hope that you are teaching quality to your students <laughs> and then that obviously set all of this in uh, in motion. And uh, I think that's actually a really cool story because I've experienced that before. Someone says something 
casually and it just really resonates and impacts you and it sends you down a, a rabbit trail and you're just like, I have to find out the truth about this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what is the definition of the word quality is a, is something I think he struggles with the rest of his life. The uh, At the very end of Lila, there's a great quote where he talks about um, good is a noun, you know, because good is not usually a noun, um, yeah. you know, and, but it, there is the good, right? We talk about the good. Are you serving the good? And so um, he, he states explicitly, this is the close I, closest I found to him explaining his theory of metaphysics of quality in terms that make sense to humans, you know, Good as a noun rather than as an adjective is all the metaphysics, metaphysics of quality is about. Of course, the ultimate quality isn't a noun or an adjective or anything else definable. But if you had to reduce the whole metaphysics of quality to a single sentence, that would be it. Good is a noun. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's just interesting. And then the, the other thing that's weird is they've got pictures of tools spread out throughout the whole book, you know. <laughs> which couldn't help but but think of you when I, I saw those because it looked like there were obviously some sockets and wrenches and things for uh, working on motorcycles but it looked like there was some woodworking stuff in there, there was <laughs> there there was definitely some woodworking tools in there but the um but it, it is something that i thought about as i read the book because there is um there is a certain i use the term craftsmanship that i think you can bring to what you do I learned it from my dad who was an avid woodworker and I grew up kind of at his knee and I do it still. And I really consider craftsmanship and everything that I make. Uh, I'm not, you know, my currency is craftsmanship. It's not speed or money or whatever. It's really craftsmanship. But, but I carried that into my law practice and my Max Sparky work. In fact, I wrote on the, I think, 20th anniversary of my dad's death, which was like, I don't know, 10 years ago now, I wrote a blog post about craftsmanship and how I had learned it from him. And that, to me, is a um, philosophical underpinning of my life in terms of how I view the world. You know, in term, I don't look at people, I don't care what kind of car you drive, but do you work with craftsmanship, with the things you make? That, to me, is is the judge of people and myself. So, you would think that this would resonate with me, but it, it didn't quite, I think he's going a little bit further down the rabbit hole than I am, but, but yeah, there is a relation there. Yeah. And, and that, that topic that, so the, the craftsmanship that you're talking about, I, I kind of put in words in his mouth, but he, it, that's kind of what he's going for. I feel like with, with quality, because he's talking about static quality versus dynamic quality and how Static quality is like a pattern of one-sided fixed values, but dynamic quality is the source of all things. You know, it's much harder to define. And I feel like uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but with with craftsmanship, it's kind of this innate feeling like, oh, well, this is well made, right? That's yeah, kind of you know, what you would say. You just know, and that's what he says too. You, uh, quality should know. You don't have to think about it. <laughs> yeah, but what's interesting is that in this uh, this book on on quality. You know the the underpinnings of this the the beginning of of the whole metaphys- metaphysics of quality that he's talking about here. I think it's fair to say that that was Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Yeah, that they share at the in the preface here that that book, which <laughs> kind of interesting, right? He's obsessed with this uh, this concept of of quality, and he's writing this book, which is in a lot of ways uh, tied to this these thoughts on quality. 
but it got rejected 121 times. <laughs> that was one of my <laughs> favorite is, parts. That, yeah, in terms of just kind of like takeaways from the book, the guy got rejected over 100 times, and you know what? He didn't quit. <laughs> yep, exactly. So those are 121 times where he's getting external validation, uh, essentially saying like all these thoughts that you have on this topic of quality, we don't think they're any good. But obviously he stuck with it and he he got that that book out. Now that wasn't the the case with what he calls the first book. So let's go into the introduction the right way because um, this was also interesting to me. He talks about how there was the the first book and the second book. And when he's talking about the second book, he's talking about Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. But the first book was one that never got written. And he tells the story of how he and his wife saved up enough money and they traveled to Mexico and they had the perfect setup for him to sit down and, and write. But he gave in to a lot of the distractions and the procrastination that that we all succumb to at different points. And he even says when it was hard, he found something else to distract him. One of the things he found to distract him was building a boat. <laughs> I'm kind of curious uh, if, if you've ever had the the inclination to to build a boat out of your, out in your shop <laughs> when you're procrastinating on a project. Yeah, so sometimes when I think, well, I can't really finish this project, maybe I should just build a submarine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But yeah, that that was fun. But it, yeah, I agreed. It also kind of goes to the struggle we all have, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. In fact, there's a phrase that he uses, which I, I think this was brilliant. He says that he's, he's reflecting on this decision to build this boat. <laughs> and he says... It seemed like a brilliant idea because it got him out of writing. I mean, that's brutally honest there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, that was great. And then the second book is the one that actually did get written. And so he's kind of comparing the one that he didn't write versus the one that he did write. And uh, some of the, the things that he was told when he was writing the second one is write about what you know. Um, and the idea came out of what he was currently doing. I think there's, there's uh, some good advice there. Uh, he says on page 11, I'm sure that in any creative project, you can't perceive what the end is going to be unless it is a very small thing you are doing, which again, I feel like is is pretty brilliant um, because anytime I sit down to do a creative project, uh, if I try to figure it all out, I've realized at this point that that's a fruitless exercise because it's going to change and it's going to evolve throughout the the course of the project. So trying to figure out what it's supposed to be at the end is almost pointless at the beginning the real value comes in in just starting it's almost like child rearing right like you don't know what they're going to grow up to be you just try and take care of them when they're little and then they take on the life of their own yeah exactly there's a a, a i talk about the the creativity flywheel in, in my uh, uh obsidian cohort and uh, really it's this idea development process because that's how i view ideas you have no idea what they are going to be when you actually have them. And I talk about, you got to have the right environment and you got to just provide the, the right, uh, the right nutrients, the, the, the time, the, the, the space to, to grow. But I mean, some people maybe who are master gardeners can put a seed in the ground and they know exactly what they're going to get. I would have no idea. I would have to just show up and water it every day. And when something poked through the, the soil, which there's a lot of consistency that has to happen before you get to that point, uh, that's when you start to figure out what you've, what you've really got to work with. And I feel like creative ideas are, are like that too. Um, I feel like this kind of, that one sentence, I mean, that's not the whole point of the book there, but just recognizing at this point the struggle that he went through in order to actually write the book. And that statement just rings to me of the creative act by 
uh, Rick Rubin. That's a, a great book. And The Laws of Creativity by Joey Cofone. You and I actually talked to him for the the Focus podcast. Yeah. I feel like if you really want to go deeper on on that topic, there's some great, great resources there. But it's a, a very valid point that he's making in a very astute observation, I feel. Yeah, they, like in the Rick Rubin concept that we, as humans, we're just creative by nature. Just like, you know, trees make fruit, humans make things. And uh, I love that that whole concept of it. And and that introductory section of this about Bob's quest, there is a, there's a lot of takeaways in there that are probably worth the cost of the book just to kind of reinforce ideas and, and see a fellow traveler. I mean, how often is it that people think that in order to write the great novel or to do the, the big thing, they have to take a step, like move to Mexico. Like, um, you know, you have to like, turn your world upside down so you can make this thing as part of the art process. I just don't buy that. And I feel like every time I see a story about somebody who tries that, it inevitably doesn't work. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if you can't create where you are, you're not going to be able to create in Mexico. It's just, you've got to figure the process out, changing your location. You're just going to bring the same baggage with you. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, there are occasional stories of, of people who uh, got a way to, to do a thing. Um, I actually just listened to a Cal Newport podcast the other day where he was talking to somebody who moved to France because they were going to write a book. Um, and they, they actually failed at it. But that seems to be the prevailing <laughs> advice. If you, if you have the means, essentially, just completely change your location, go someplace foreign, and uh, you'll have nothing to do but to uh, sit down and, and write the thing. But a lot of times you do just end up bringing all your distractions and bringing all your, your problems with you. Uh, but you do need to think about your environment. So th- there's some, some nuance there. Yeah, I agree. The extended mind, you know, when we would talk to Annie Murphy Paul, she talked a lot about the, the environment and how that can uh, be, uh, that can support the, the right uh, and deeper levels of thinking. And I agree with that too. I so I'm a little bit of a, I'm a little contrary there. But the uh, I but I also think that this idea of moving somewhere else, like when you've got the big project, you know, moving to France, moving to Mexico, I I just don't generally buy it. I think it, you more often than not that is going to be a bigger distraction than if you just figured out your space. Yep. Can we go into the the quality discussion? Because, I mean, that's the root of the book um, where he tries yeah. to define quality. And he tries to define quality but keeps saying how it can't be defined. And this is where you know he's been around Zen monks because that's exactly what they do. You know, the idea <laughs> of, of finding um, uh, what they call nirvana in the moment. You can't read it in a book, so they want to bang you over the head until it, it pops in. And I feel like he's using techniques like that and I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know. It just this part to me was a little hard. But the, uh, but then he got into an extended discussion of arete, which is my quality word. That's a word I've been carrying <laughs> yes. around for forty years, and and it was fun to see all the research and everything they pulled together on the history of the word. Yeah. So that part he talks about Phaedrus, which I think is the character from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And honestly, that's where he kind of started to lose me. But that Arate term obviously popped off the the page to me because I've heard you talk about this a lot. How would how would you define Arate? Um, the um, 
I would say I define arte as virtue in the Aristotelian sense of the word. Um, I think virtue, in fact, they make the point in this book that, you know, the original interpretation of arte uh, was a Victorian version of virtue, which, you know, it's about, you know, um, you know, virginity and like, it's just, it's, it's not really virtue in the sense that the bigger sense of the word, you know, Aristotle thought of virtue in the sense of uh, a man of virtue or a woman of virtue, a person who lives their life to their potential to do greater good. Um, and it's, it's, it's a fuzzy term, but the interesting thing for me is I've realized one of the, one of the insights I got from this book is, because he goes into the root of arte and he goes back into like even ancient languages where um, the RT symbol, which is the basis of arte is also a root for words like art and um, arithmetic and other words. And, and, and I realized that I don't really care that much. I have to me, <laughs> arte took on a term for me in college when I first discovered it of the Aristotelian virtue. And it, it's just a hook I'm using to hang things on when I judge myself. It's like, am I doing my best, my, you know, to become the best version of myself in these various things I do. And arete is a kind of a fun, ancient way to connect it to thousands of year old people that ask themselves the same questions. And, and that led me to the idea of, well, maybe that's what Persic is doing with quality. Just like I am abusing the word arte for my uses, maybe he's doing that with quality, I'm not sure. But that was a question that came to me in this section of the book. That That's interesting because um, I, I think I actually kind of like that approach where let's make this mean what is uh, useful to me. Now, obviously, you can't just make up your own definitions for for things and but but also like seeing his his uh approach and knowing a little bit about his story i kind of feel like when it comes to some of this stuff figure out at what point it's useful and then maybe it's all right not knowing everything about <laughs> something yeah yeah <laughs> like the surface level revelation of arate if that's enough to help me to live a better life which is really what he's after i think here with with uh the metaphysics metaphysics equality and it kind of i believe that more and more as we get into the the later parts but i like the way you you defined it and set it up as like uh virtue and, and essentially that i i feel like if we're going to try to live out arate or at this point in part one we're going to live a, a quality life essentially what we are trying to do is do the best we can with what we've got to work with. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which going back to the previous section with the creative stuff, uh, I feel like this is actually a fairly good transition from that because he, he talks about how quality can't be originally defined. Everyone knows what it is. But then on page 30, he talks about how normally one's ability to see what is good marches ahead of one's ability to produce it. So Tying that back to the creative stuff, I feel like this is where imposter syndrome <laughs> kicks in because you are watching these things and listening to these things and reading these things that other people have made and you can appreciate the quality that is in those things, but you haven't yet developed the ability to do that yourself. You have the potential to do it, but without the practice, obviously you're not going to be able to. So the first time that you 
sit down and, and try to make something and then you compare it to the people who you look up to and you're like, well, this is garbage compared to what what they make, like that can cause you to to stop creating. And, and that's the thing we gotta be be careful of. Quality, uh, I feel, and this goes broader than just the the creative stuff, but this is very personal. Uh, really living a quality life and even making quality art is not in comparison to the other things that other people have made, but is this the very best that I can do? And it's it's not as long as you just view it as a one-time event. It's gotta be a practice. And the more repetitions you get, the more feedback loops, the better the art becomes, the higher the quality. There's a um, Latin term, materium superabat opus, which means roughly the quality was better than the material or the sum <laughs> was better than the parts. And I, I've always, I've, I told my kids, that's what I want on my gravestone because I feel like that's the goal, right? We get these raw materials of life as we start and it's up to us to make the most we can out of them. And that's what you want at the end is that the sum was greater than the parts, the quality was better than the material. And, and I feel like that's what he's aiming for here. He never really says that. And like even kind of looking into his head a bit, that boat he built, he named Arate. He named the boat Arate, you know. And, and is quality for him a modern substitute for the word Arate? Or why would he spend so much time on it? Um, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, I feel like this whole book is a puzzle and I'm trying to unlock it. But there's <laughs> there's a bit of that to to him. So, to that extent, I relate to him. I think Arate is an excellent standard to live to. I think we do need in modern times something to judge ourselves by. And um, I do think that to get philosophical for a minute, I think um, relativism is not good enough. You know, relativism, mm -hmm. the idea that nothing, you can re can't really judge anything because everything is subject to relative constraints or whatever. No, I think in the world there are things that are good and bad, and, and sometimes you need to take a stand. And um, I, uh, I don't think we have enough of that now. So maybe, you know, maybe I'm closer to this guy than I think I am. But, but this book is dense, man. It's tough. <laughs> it is dense. Uh, let's go into the, the next part. Um, which is part two, and this is on values. And I have to say that this part left me <laughs> sorely disappointed. I love the term values. Uh, yeah. In fact, in uh, Master of Change by Brad Stolberg, um, there's a section in there where he talks about personal core values. And that got me real excited because this is important to, to me. Um, I feel like the concept of values fits perfectly with everything that he's talking about here with the metaphysics of quality and trying to live a, a quality life. But sadly, I don't, I don't think he really gets into uh, values a whole lot here, uh, unless there's, there's a, a connection that I'm just not, not making here. Um, what, it, what did you think about this part? And can you maybe shine some light on how this, this connects for me? Um, it's very difficult, I think. Like, there's a quote in this section the place to improve the world is first in one's own heart and head and hands, and then work outward from there. And I think that's what he's aiming for in this section, but it's very obtuse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the quotes I wrote down here this is kind of more to do with quality than it does uh, with values, but quality is a characteristic of thought and statement that is recognized by a non thinking process. Because definitions of a 
are a product of rigid formal thinking, quality cannot be defined. I feel like that kind of sets the stage for what I believe around values and, and vision and using that as the the framework or the the foundation for making the decisions that will ultimately lead you to live a, a quality, meaningful life. But uh, he doesn't really get to to that point. This is really where he just repeats that no one understands what quality is. It can't be defined, but everyone knows it when they see it. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, right? And then, like, there's a, a quote from an interview in this section he did in the Washington Post, and he says, I'm trying to make the classic concepts more relevant today, helping people lead more imaginative, productive lives. The problem today is one has to succeed in some terrible chain of values. And I, I guess almost this section feels like he's identifying a problem more than giving you a solution. But again, yeah. I'm I'm on board with some of this. Like I do read the classics. I mean, by classics, you know, um, Plato, Aristotle, you know, Marcus Aurelius, these these old folk. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom in the stuff they wrote, and I love the idea of timeless problems. I mean, just like you're struggling to figure out how to have the best relationship with your kid, uh, Aristotle probably did the same thing. You know, and so the it just. All of us, you know, there are these things we face as humans that continue through the ages. And and I feel like he's making some call to that with this. So, again, this, this book triggers some thoughts in myself, but doesn't really give me a lot of answers. And I guess maybe that was part of his, his shtick. Yeah, so if you're taking this book as kind of priming the pump and you're going to go a lot deeper on whatever kind of resonates from what you read here, I think it actually could be a pretty valuable tool. But in terms of how we typically approach books for bookworm, which is an author or a guru is waxing or pontificating about everything that they know on a topic, like that's not here in this, this value section. But I do think that this is a, a pretty cool springboard for thinking about this further for yourself and to the point that you were just making, you know, I never really made the connection about how my approach to having a better relationship with my kids or with my wife, uh, that's a different version of the same type of problem that Aristotle was trying to solve. But I, I think there's some some truth to that. And the approach really is you try to be intentional. You try to be focused on the things that are going to move the needle for you. And what I like about the concept of values is that you get to pick these. You get to decide what's really important for you. And if you do that, then you have at least things that will point you towards things that are quality. You maybe can't measure yet the quality of of something based on these these values. But I feel like if the goal is to to get to the end of our life and say that, yes, I had a quality life, that values are very important piece of that. And obviously, you know, I've, I've got my, my life theme cohort, which is like a personal mission statement. We've got family core values that my wife and I worked out and printed and they're hanging on our, our living room wall. And you don't have to maybe go that far, but uh, I think this is a, a piece that it's easy to gloss over when you're constantly just jumping from one thing to the next. The busyness that we find ourselves in kind of unintentional, I don't know, it sort of diminishes the the value in the moment of stopping everything and figuring this stuff out. But 
once you actually have this, I feel like this is the way that you you focus on the the things that are quality and and uh, it's a constant struggle, obviously, to maintain that focus. That's why we do the focus podcast. Uh, but if you're thinking about it, you have a much greater chance of uh, being able to follow through on on those intentions, and that's really what we're trying to do here. And this book is just so hippy dippy that it's very easy for us to tumble ourselves into a focused episode in the middle of book one. So <laughs> we're doing our best not to, gang. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But also, I feel like uh, given the the framework of, of this book, uh, I think we we try to talk about these things in a way that's a, approachable to everyone on the Focus podcast. Um, but if there was ever a time and a place to really go into to hippie mode, that's probably the, today for this recording. So. Yeah, Can, there's another in the in the next section called the metaphysics of quality. There's a line in that that really resonated with me. He talks about in a letter to somebody, he says, a major problem of this century is that there has been no intellectual basis for making moral judgments. A lot of timidity and a lot of foolishness about making them has arisen. That's left society open to the sort of moral erosion that is distressing people everywhere these days. And um, I know those are a bunch of trigger words for a lot of people in the audience. So I don't, I don't want to, to do that, but I do think um, we all need to be willing to stand up for right and wrong. I, I just had this conversation with my kids recently about this whole idea of irony, like, you know, where that's like a thing now. Everybody's like ironic about everything. And I said, I think that's kind of cowardish, you know? Um, uh, don't be ironic about something. If you don't like it, say it. You know, the irony doesn't get us anywhere. It's not funny. It's not solving a problem. If there's a problem, solve the problem. Don't be ironic. Anyway, I I guess I'm going down. See, I'm going down the focused rabbit hole again. (laughs) That's okay, though. But I I like that quote. it, it, It worked with me, you know, and I think that's something to think about. Yeah. So one of the things that kind of ties to that, that I jotted down from this part three on the metaphysics of quality is that everything is an ethical activity. And I've kind of believed that for uh, for a long time, but uh, maybe that's at the root of the the thing you were talking about with the um, the the whole concept of of irony. When you're just responding to something in isolation, it's easy to just flippantly say or or do something. Um, but when you view every moment that you have, going back to the concept of memento mori, I think and really just, I'm going to make the very best of every single moment that I have on this earth. We really don't have time to waste. And uh, you can define for yourself, I guess, what you consider to be right or wrong in terms of, of ethical ac- activity. But the, uh, the world would be a much better place if everybody had that, that lens that they were looking through. I feel like a lot of the times we just switch into default mode and we just react instead of responding to things. And uh, I, I was challenged when I when I read that because I know that I've fallen into <laughs> this trap myself. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, going back to the whole concept of, of productivity, uh, doesn't mean that you have to be quote unquote productive and, and making something or doing something every moment of, of every day, but realizing that every moment that we have is a... Uh, component of this larger thing, which is 
our life. And that is the thing that we're trying to maximize as much value as we can from that to, to live something that is quality and, and meaningful. In fact, that's one of the things he talks about also in this chapter is that meaning is a synonym for quality. And obviously that, that kind of stuck with me because that's the whole purpose behind the life theme and the core values is to, to live a life of, of meaning and intention. You know, that's what everybody is, is trying to do, whether they, they realize it or not. And obviously different people are going to say it in, in different ways. There's, there's lots of different flavors of, of this stuff. And Robert Piercig's generally doesn't jive with me, but there are a couple things in here that I thought were helpful and help kind of fill in uh, some uh, additional details to how I, th- I think about this stuff. Uh, and that's one of the things that I've learned over the, the years with, with Bookworm is I'll have my thinking about something and I'll read a book and it's not at all on the topic, but it's going to help add a couple more details. I think the, the last one that I did that I kind of had the same sort of feeling like this is useful for me in terms of my own personal philosophy, vision and values, stuff like that was a hero on a mission by Donald Miller. Now I don't really like Donald Miller's uh, approach, but that book asked some of the same questions that I, I like to think about my favorite questions. If you want to phrase it that way, that I'm constantly kind of turning over in my, my head, it gave me some, some new angles to, to think about some of that stuff. And I feel like that's what this chapter did for me as well. Yeah, and I think he's pushing a lot of those same buttons with with his writings and thoughts, although it never really coalesces together. And the word quality, a lot of times throughout the book, I I never was able to nail it down because, like, even the quote I I did from Lila earlier, that's one way he defines it. But then it it does seem to move around a bit throughout his writings and and in fairness these are writings throughout his life there's you'll see a letter he wrote in 1970 something and then a, a lecture he gave in 2004 it's just so it's not really fair to judge the guy uh, but it, it, he does kind of move around a bit with his thoughts on this stuff over the course of his life yeah it almost reads like a journal um, once i had that that uh perspective then I was able to let go of some of the like blatant contradictions here because he like five or six different times says quality is and then uses a completely different yeah. analogy or a completely different <laughs> definition. Uh, but when I viewed it, kind of like you said, these are all individual writings. And so what we're kind of seeing here is a snapshot of his thinking on this, I feel like evolving over time. And ultimately, that's what I would like to think if someone were to do the same thing and look at all my journal entries, they would have the same sort of thought as like, well, none of this connects because it's not supposed to be read in one sitting as a, this is everything that I ever thought about this. But when you take a step back and you you can kind of see the, the growth and the, the, how things mature and how thoughts mature and, and and change over, over time, it kind of tells a, a different story. And it definitely evolves. I mean, the, when you've got decades between topics or discussions of the same topic, it, it evolves. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I feel like kind of uh, complements that idea that he talks about in this section is the that dynamic quality is a, a stream of quality events that go on forever. So quality really is an event. It's not a, a thing. And without that dynamic quality, without those string of quality events, nothing is actually going to grow or evolve. And I think it's easy to 
I've been there where like, oh, I wrote this thing and I professed, you know, this is the the way that this stuff ties together. Um, but that kept me from publishing things for a very long time because I didn't want to be wrong. I didn't want to have something on the internet that somebody could point back to at some point and say, well, you said this, you know, and kind of what I realized was that whenever I actually do write a, a blog post or publish a podcast episode, that's a snapshot in time. That is what I think about this thing right now. But I give myself permission to change my mind. And I feel like that's something if I had known Robert Piercig, you would be able to see throughout his life is that he was willing to change his mind about about things. But I don't know, maybe I'm just reading a little too much into it. No, I agree. And honestly, that's a sign of someone who is intellectually awake, right? You, if you stick to the same ideas your whole life, you're not growing. Yep. All right, uh, let's talk briefly about this next part because I know <laughs> you're not a big fan of part four uh, Dharma. Um, but I do think that there's a couple things in here which uh, we don't have to talk about Dharma specifically, but just some ideas here. Uh, he, he talks about how quality and spirituality are synonymous. And I don't want to make this necessarily uh, religious, but I do think that this kind of ties back to the whole idea of living a, a quality life. Uh, really what that means is that our life is more than just the the bag of bones that you see day to day. And I don't know if that resonates with people or not. Obviously it kind of resonates with, with me and it makes me uh, kind of attached to his ideas about quality uh, a little bit more and, and meaning. I mean, obviously for me, there is a, a spiritual aspect to that, but I don't think you necessarily have to have that. It, you can have your own vision and your values, and then that should be influencing everything else that that you do. And ultimately, you have to figure out what is right for you. There's a quote in this section that I really liked. Um, on page 101, he says, everyone has a personal dharma, which could be defined as duty to quality. I think that's true. We've got a, a duty to live a, a quality life, a meaningful life. That doesn't mean that the specifics of that quality life, anybody else can can necessarily say this is right or this is wrong. You have to find that for your for yourself. But um, and, and in fact, there's a quote from Shun, Shunryu Suzuki. says, when I'm all done with this lecture, you should forget every word that I've said. I feel like that's the mindset. That's the approach you got to have when you read books, not just books like this, but books in general is this is somebody who professes to have all these answers. If you're reading a productivity book anyways, that's what it seems like. This is a guru who's been up the mountain and they've got the three secrets uh, to help you save an hour a day every day for the rest of your life. And all you got to do is follow their system. Well, no, you should go into it you should, challenging all of the arguments that they are going to make. And then whatever resonates, that's what you keep. But there should be no pressure, no obligation to retain necessarily anything that they are going to say. The obligation is on them to convince you that something here is going to be useful. And when you feel like you have the the permission and the freedom to pick a little piece here and a little piece there and, and fit it into your own personal philosophy, that's really where you get the, the benefits. It's not, okay, so I'm, I'm going to apply this entire system. Um, I feel like this is where this is a little bit of a rabbit trail maybe, but this is uh, the approach that a lot of people take with like GTD. I don't think GTD is necessarily bad, but people try to follow that that diagram that David Allen made 20, 30 years ago at this point and to the T. 
And then when it doesn't work for them, you know, I've been there where it's like, oh, something's wrong with me because obviously David Allen has this figured out. No, the approach is wrong. You're not supposed to just take that whole thing. You're supposed to figure out what works and, and spit out the sticks. And this this quote from Suzuki is a very common quote in Buddhism because the idea of Buddhism really is about letting go of um, attachments. And Buddha himself taught that the last attachment you need to let go of is Buddha. You know, you can't... It, Buddhism... And, boy, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. I, Buddhism, is, in a lot of ways, is not a religion. It's more of a, a way of thinking. Um, and the idea is you got to let go of that too. <laughs> You know, and uh, mm-hmm. so this is very common. So that that's the part. The reason I was a little um, wound up about this chapter is just his use of the term dharma. Uh, I, in my own mind, I have my own definitions of that that I think are a little more conventional. And the constant use of mixing it with quality um, really kept throwing me in a tailspin. It was hard to to keep up with it because it's like. It's, you know, redefining a word that is very much defined in my head is hard. <laughs> that is fair. I can totally see that. If I just suddenly told you anytime I say green, you should think about the color red. You know, it's a little hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. I, I actually like the the approach because I don't have the, the anchoring on that, that term. Yeah. yeah. Um, I kind of disregarded the title and then just kind of picked out a few of the things that I thought were kind of useful. I do think that there is some some decent ideas here that you got to figure out how to apply them, obviously, but uh, I think there's some valuable stuff. One of the things he he mentioned, and he didn't make this connection, but I did, quality can't be, can't be apprehended by the rational mind. And uh, I am definitely, I mean, people who listen to Bookworm know my uh, Christian faith guides a lot of the stuff that I do, but that's the the picture I got of that is the definition of, of faith is the the belief that what you cannot see yeah. will come to pass. <laughs> I mean without faith what is it, right? Exactly. And and even if you aren't religious, that idea of faith, I mean that that doesn't that can have a secular application too and it does definitely tie to to the whole concept of of quality that the things that you are doing in the pursuit of quality are not going to be the things that are going to trigger the dopamine hits uh, in the short term. It's going to be a more long-term thing. So quality is apprehended in ways that can't be described. He talks about in this chapter, it's believing that what you're doing is going to compound and it's going to pay off in the end. And that definition of faith that I shared, the belief that what you cannot see is, is going to come to pass. That's actually the same definition of fear. So fear, belief that what you cannot see will, will come to pass. And you can have that as, well, if I keep doing these things, I'll create the, the positive outcome that I want, or uh, uh, these, these bad things are going to happen. And so that's going to cause me to, to not, take a, not take a step, not, not do something. So I don't know. I think that there's, there's a valuable application of this by just about anybody realizing that quality goes beyond the surface level. Yes, you can't define it like he's talking about, but that's because it it's more than just what you see, feel, hear, taste, touch. It goes beyond the the physical senses. That that I definitely agree with. Another common Buddhist like parable is the moon. Um, trying to teach somebody something, and I think they had asked Buddha about it, and he says, "Look, if I point at the moon." You ask me at the moon and I point at the moon, you're going to look at my finger. 
and think that you know mm. about the moon. And that's the problem with this stuff. And I feel like he's bringing that same kind of level of scrutiny to his discussion of quality, which makes it so hard to wrap your hand around it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of questions that are opened in this book and not a whole lot of answers, which I'm okay with. I mean, I probably would have been really frustrated with that at the beginning of the, the bookworm journey, but I've learned the value of asking questions. So uh, I kind of like getting to the end of a book and feeling like uh, I've got a lot more wrestling with the ideas in it to do. <laughs> what do you think about uh, section five on attitude? Uh, not a fan of this one. Um, in fact, this is the the one that I jotted down the least from for my, my notes. Uh, I've only got a couple of things, but I feel like the the in terms of the the outline of the book this was the one i was the most excited to read <laughs> i feel like the the story he tells at the very beginning of this chapter um and it's actually i think the thing that i didn't like about this chapter is that he reuses a bunch of the stuff from zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance in this section a lot of the other parts yeah. well to be clear he's not using it somebody else is but yeah yeah, but the rest of the book felt new to me. This one felt like I had read this before. Now, obviously, there's different context. Um, there's a story at the beginning where his he's on the trip, the motorcycle trip with his son. Um, and at one point, his son asks him if he'll be able to uh, to own a motorcycle when he gets older. And dad's like, well, it's a lot of work. You're going to have to learn all these things. He's like, will I be able to, to do that? Um, yeah, as long as you have the right attitudes, he's like, am I going to have the right attitudes? He's like, I believe that you will. Uh, and I I thought about that story a lot, uh, just because I have kids myself. So I I could kind of, kind of relate to that. Uh, you don't really know that your kids are going to be able to thrive, um, when they leave the house, but you do everything that you can to put them in a position to be able to do that. And so when uh, he said that, it made me kind of think about that with each of my kids. And do I believe that they're going to be able to be successful? And the thing that's going to be able, that's going to enable them, I believe, to be successful is the right attitudes, not in terms of learning the skills to to wrench on a motorcycle. But Rachel and I have thought about this for a long time. We want to help our kids develop a lifelong love of learning because if they can learn to love learning, then whatever we are not able to teach them that they need to know, they are going to be able to learn that themselves. So that's been our approach. And I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're still approaching the the ultimate test. All of our kids are, are still at home, but I like this idea. Don't really like the the uh, supporting points selected for this chapter. Well, it's interesting because the the points selected primarily focus on love and quality and the differences mm-hmm. between them, and um, and so I, I thought you know it's almost uh, improperly named except for that nice little little quote from the book at the beginning. But I, I almost feel like this section is about love and quality. But either way. Uh, it is an interesting collection of thoughts. It definitely gives you more insight uh, behind Robert Persig. <laughs> yeah, you're right about the idea of love and quality. Um, I, I also think that's a, a powerful idea that didn't get a whole lot into, uh, but again, is maybe framed 
differently here. Uh, I would love to unpack that a little bit further because you mentioned at the beginning something else that you had read where he talked about quality being good. And I feel like there's overlap here with quality and love being interchangeable. He kind of talks about this, um, maybe it's in this section, maybe it's kind of sprinkled throughout, but when an object has quality, when it is good, then it changes how we feel about it. And that's where we, we love it. In other words, we love things because they have quality. And I feel like quality is a, a little bit, um, subjective where you define what's quality for your yourself. But I do think that there is a connection there between the things that we love and the things that we consider to have quality. And uh, my brain, as I was thinking about this, goes back to some marriage advice I got at a conference a long time ago, that uh, if you love your wife, she appreciates in your mind uh, same with with your kids or any relationship, really. But um, we tend to nitpick and, and find the flaws, right? And when we do that, we're essentially depreciating our significant other or our spouse. And uh, when we can learn to appreciate instead, then that increases the value of the the person in the that's in the relationship that we have. I thought that was a an interesting parallel to this whole discussion of of love and quality. And it, it also, it's interesting to note that this is something that really developed in the 90s. Like most of the writings he has that makes these comparisons are, are later, much later after the book, after uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and even Lila is published. Yep. Maybe there was a third book there. You know, maybe that's what all this stuff kind of adds up to where he tries to synthesize it a bit more, but he never got a chance to do that. So his wife... Uh, did her best to uh, to put it out there, and I, I'm glad she did. Yeah, me too. Um, what are your general thoughts on uh, this book as a as a whole? I never got there with metaphysics of quality, and I really tried. You know, I really tried to completely. I don't feel like I ever completely understood it, um, and because it changed so much over time, and you know, he really never did synthesize it because he didn't write this book. Um, but it did give me lots of good, interesting food for thought. Um, it made me think about my relationship with Arate and craftsmanship. Um, the, the tools in the book, the pictures and tools never made sense to me, except for the fact that he wrote another book about motorcycle maintenance. Uh, it, you know, <laughs> it never really made sense to me, but I enjoyed seeing them. Tools make me uh, comfortable and happy. Uh, but the, uh, but overall, it, it, I'm glad I read it, but it is not an easy read. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, I kind of get this picture of a, a book like this called On Craftsmanship, which I enjoy reading much more and has pictures of woodworking tools written by David Sparks. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to do that someday. I have thoughts, that's for sure. But the, um, yeah, <laughs> but it, it is a, um, but this wasn't by Robert Persig. And, and I think that was, uh, that that made it tough. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, this is a a selection of things that somebody else uh, determined were important to him on this topic, based off of little snippets of things that he had written. But I'm sure it would have been very different than an actual conversation with Robert Piercing on this this uh, particular topic. 
I do wish he would have written this book. Um, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, not a fan. From what I can tell about Lila, I don't think that's really the the book for me either, uh, but an actual discussion about these topics, I, I'm all, all in on that. And uh, it would have been interesting even if you know we would have had very different conclusions about things to just get straight from his mouth uh, a packaged presentation on his actual thoughts on on this topic. I love the action item part of this of this podcast. Mike, what are your action items on this book? <laughs> I have none. <laughs> uh, so I don't think that means that no action will be taken from this book, however. Uh, there's some some things that I've been noodling on since I, I read this. And uh, I don't have anything specific yet. And I feel like it's it's still just kind of brewing in the background. It's not even like, well, I have to unpack this further. But there's some things in here that kind of spoke to me. We talked about the, the the simple story that he shared from Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and how that got me to reconsider my relationship with my kids. You know, I feel like there's some different quotes that as we were going through it even today and having a conversation about it, you know, hit a little bit deeper now that we had some, some dialogue. Um, I, I think this is probably going to be fairly impactful over the long term, but there is absolutely nothing in here that's like, oh, that was a great idea. I'm definitely going to apply this. Uh, I'm assuming you didn't have anything like that either. Not really. I mean, this isn't that kind of book, but I I will say that um, the extended discussion of Arte um, got me digging in. Like I have my document where I define Arte and what it means to me. And I'm annotating that based on some of the things I learned here. It is interesting to get a little bit more of the definition of, uh, or the history of the word. Uh, and the show today got me thinking more about craftsmanship. I think I may try and document that a bit more in my, in my written system, my obsidian database as well. But so there's, there's some follow-up items I want to do, but uh, lots of food for thought here. But it, like I said, it, this is not, as a listener of your show, this is this is an unusual one. <laughs> it is a little bit unusual. Um, I am glad that uh, we read it, though, and uh, really appreciated the chance to to talk through it with you. Um, I, I was picturing if this one had been recommended in another way di- at different time, you know, and Joe was on the show, and I went through this with him, uh, would have been a very different conversation and i i probably would have if i had read this you know six months ago a year ago um i I probably would have still had the the bad taste of zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance in my mouth and and like i would have just written this one off i feel like i i this one was actually valuable and and helpful to me at at this point even though it's not you know one of my my favorite books i guess we're kind of getting into uh to style and rating at at this point but um, it, it's a short book. It's an easy read, uh, in terms of getting through it. I mean, if you're going to wrestle with some of these ideas, it's definitely not easy. If you're going to figure out what you actually think about some of this stuff, um, this may be one of the more difficult books that, that you would sit down and read. But, um, I, I like the, the table of contents a lot. <laughs> I like the, uh, 
the order and the progression of some of these ideas. Um, if you're looking for answers to some of these topics, quality, values, attitude, um, I don't think you're going to find it, but I think uh, it is useful in terms of sparking some additional questions and getting you to to think through things. Um, I'm gonna rate this three stars, although I would probably skew a little bit higher than that. Uh, I have trouble putting it at four stars, uh, just in the most recent one that that comes to mind is, is Masters, Master of Change by Brad Stahlberg. I rated that at, at four stars. Um, I feel like I got a lot more out of out of that book in particular. But I am taking your advice, David. Joe is not on board yet, but I'm not doing the the half stars anymore. So Yeah, I, 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 I'm not a fan, honestly. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> One to five is good enough, right? I mean, the, yeah, uh, but, yeah. but the, um, uh, I'm with you. I, I'm giving it a three. And the, the problem is there are some people listening for whom this book will be a five. And there's mm-hmm. a bunch of people who are listening for whom this book will be a one or a two. And it you can't really grade it that way, right? Um, so I think if you got to this point in the podcast, you've got a pretty good idea if you might connect with this or not. Uh, the other thing I would recommend is read it twice. It's it's a hundred pages. I read it first and just kind of like tried to not judge it and just read it. And then I said, you know what? I need to read it again. I went back and read it a second time, and then it like it landed better the second time because I had a better idea what where he was going. And uh, this is a book you may want to just read twice. Sure. That's fair. Uh, Another thing I think about this book is that um, if you're trying to select individual books that are going to speak to a specific problem that you are facing, this is not a good book to pick up. But if you're taking a long-term view of, I want to become a learned reader, uh, this is a valuable dot to add to your collection. Um, I feel like this has long-term value that you won't realize uh, for for a while until you get some other dots to, to connect it to. Uh, it kind of feels to me like how to read a book in that sense, although that one I feel is a lot more practical. So it's not fair to compare this one to that either. But I just have this this sense from reading this one that even though I can't really figure out how these mental Lego bricks that I've collected from reading this are going to be used in putting together something, that they will be useful nonetheless down the road. Yeah, and also if you just want to ask yourself some Aristotle-level questions, this is a good book. There, You'll read some stuff in here. He doesn't answer them for you, but he gives you the question. And, uh, you know, just like, um, uh, you know, other books that ask big questions and don't give you answers, I think you can learn a lot from those as well. I mean, that just like personal Socrates, I mean, this book is a source of questions. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, one of my my favorites. Again, that one is a, a bit more practical, but this one, because it actually gives you the, the, the questions to ask, this one you got to dig a little bit. Um, but I think if you put in the, the effort, then this is a, a, a valuable read. Uh, again, though, you're right. It's not going to be for everybody. So recognize if you're picking this one up, you got to be interested in the the topic of quality. You got to be willing to dive a little bit deeper and you got to be willing to do some additional work here uh, because he is not going to give you 
the uh, the answers himself. But overall, I'm I'm glad that I, I read this. You know, I kind of came full circle with this. I had the same reaction that uh, that you did at the beginning. Uh, I was kind of asking, like, why did Mike Vardy speak so highly about this book? <laughs> but uh, having talked through it, I feel like uh, I've got a uh, a different. Uh, a little bit, little bit of a, a, a different perspective on it now. I mean, I kind of was moving this way already as I was reading it, and found myself as the recording got closer, looking forward to talking to you about it. That's one of the the indicators of a, a decent book, in in my opinion. Um, if I read it, and I feel like okay, that's it. I've gotten everything that I need out of this. Um, it's very surface level value, but a lot of the real good stuff comes from the conversations uh, around this. So. If you've got other people who are interested in this sort of topic, uh, this would be a great one, I feel like, to use as a jumping off point, kind of like we did today. You know, This is what Robert Piercig says, so what do you think about that? Might lead to some interesting conversations and follow-up. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you on that. I feel like this conversation to me has been uh, just as enjoyable as reading the book, like getting talking to a, a good friend about these types of questions. Good stuff. Yeah. So we'll wrap up there. Uh, probably most people who listen to Bookworm are aware of where to find you other places, but just in case <laughs> people yeah. want to find more Max Sparky, where do they go? Max Sparky. Go to MaxSparky.com. It's all there. <laughs> and if you want to hear another podcast I make, it's called the Focus Podcast, which I do with a very smart young man named Michael Schmitz. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fun one. It's a productivity podcast, but more than just cranking widgets where we talk about intentionality and, and focus uh not quite as uh, not quite as uh, a hippie level as we got to today <laughs> yeah it's kind of fun though right yep definitely well thank you for being on the show david really uh, appreciate you coming on uh, for people who are are listening we will be back in uh, a couple of weeks book and guest yet to be determined but we will talk to you in a couple of weeks